After winning a key court ruling, the Trump Hotel is poised for a $1 million tax refund. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about local housing news, including a look at the latest data around home prices in Chicago and how in Washington Park, 100,000 red tulips mark sites of redlining. In the vicinity of 53rd and Prairie, in three of the four corners and another spot, an artist, Amanda Williams, and volunteers planted 100,000 red tulips last fall. They're in bloom this week. It's, it's a pretty amazing sight. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, April 27th. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a WinTrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local WinTrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Radkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. How are you? Amy, I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Well, we've got, as usual, plenty of things to dig into. Let's start by talking about home prices, because there are two stories you wrote that on the surface, if you just glance at the headlines, seem like they might be in conflict, but they're not at all. One of them is about how as home prices drop in other big cities, they're still rising in Chicago. The other story is about how city home prices slide for the fifth month in a row. So tell me about this data, because we're talking about two different sets of data over different time periods. This is a problem I run into toward the end of the month, every month. One set of data comes from the Illinois Association of Realtors. It's sort of simple math. Here's how many houses sold, and here's the median price in that group. Then several days later, what we get is the Case-Shiller Index, which is a far more carefully scientific uh, measure of prices. It's an index of prices that is is more refined than that uh raw number we get. It also is for a different period. The Illinois, what we have right now is Illinois Realtors data on March and Case Shiller data on February. So that's why the stories may look a little different. Let's talk about the two. You want to talk first about the Illinois Association of Realtors data that shows house prices falling? Yeah. That is bulk data. They come up with the median uh, from what sold in the previous month And what we're seeing, uh, again, this is March, so these would be purchase decisions that are made later than what happened in the the other set of data we're going to look at. And that's one thing to think about is that interest rates have been changing. We have been learning to live with the higher interest rates. A lot of things may have been different for the houses, the homes that were purchased in March from the homes that were purchased in February. Nevertheless, In the Illinois Realtors data for March, what we saw is that the median price of homes sold in the region was down 3.2% from March 2022 in the nine-county metropolitan area. The big drop, the real problem area we see is houses in the city, not just, not all sales in the city. 
but sales of houses, home, house prices in the city were down 8.7% in March from a year before. That's the fifth, year, fifth month in a row that uh, city data has been down. Condos down not nearly as much, 1.7%. But the real, the big dipper here is houses in the city. Um, before I get into why, I do want to say metro-wide, city sales are, are roughly a quarter, 28% of all sales. And in the metro overall, home prices were flat. So flat for the region, down for the city. If you break it out to just houses, down quite a bit, 8.7%. 8, 8 one thing I want to be very clear about is this does not seem to feed into people's narrative about crime downtown because houses are generally not downtown. Houses are in neighborhoods away from downtown for the most part. So we can't say that the reason this is going on is the recent outbreaks of crime or the long-term issue with crime. Unfortunately, I can't say what is going on because I really don't know. I've been looking at this for a couple of months. We've discussed it for a couple of months. Um, for a while, it was possible to say, well, it might be because there's a mayoral election in the city. So that's sort of slowing demand. Um, that, that is still the only thing I can say. These, again, these are closings that happened in March and the final, the, the ultimate election was in April. So it could be that what we're looking at is um, some skittishness around the idea that there's an election. I think there's something more. I intend to spend some time trying to find out what that something more is. I did go through neighborhood by neighborhood to see if, let's just say, the big losses were all on the far northwest side or something like that. That's only an example. And there's no pattern I can find. I can't figure out um, where home, uh, when you look at all 77 community areas, which is how the data is broken down, um, there's not a pattern. It's not all south or all north, or as I said, all northwest. Um, there are a lot of places where house prices are have been flat. There are some where they've fallen, but overall, house prices are down considerably in the city, while prices of all properties, house, condo, are flat for the region. That's the March data. That's the data from Illinois Realtors. You, do you want me to move on to Case Schiller, or do you want to ask me some questions? <laughs> Sorry. I don't mean to just go on like a railroad train. Yeah, no, let's let's keep going. I always say you do the math so we don't have to, and we are all appreciative. No need to send me notes of appreciation. I just, <laughs> you know, when I get this data in my teeth, I want to chew on it. So the other set of data, as I said, is for a different period. This is a national index, so there's a little bit more of a delay. This is data for February. This is the Case Shiller Index. As I said, it's a little more, it's more refined, it's much more detailed in the mathematical equations that go in. And it's an index, which is different from, which is an entirely different tool from what we get from Illinois uh, Realtors. And what I use Case Shiller for primarily is to see how Chicago's market compares to other major markets. And what we're finding is um, home prices were still rising in February, according to that index. Of course, when we get the March data a month from now, it could be more like what I just reported from Illinois Realtors. But home prices in the Chicago area um, up 3.6% in March from a year before. And there are a couple of reasons that's significant. One, as we've already talked about on previous podcasts, but it's, been it's now renewed with this new data, in other cities, prices are falling. And that's actually... Um, gaining momentum. Last month at this time, we said four 
of the 20 cities in the Case-Shiller Index had prices that were declining. This month, a month later, it's eight. So there are more and more cities where prices are going down while Chicago's prices continue to go up. But uh, that 3.6% is on top of 13% a year ago, which means that even though our prices rose a lot during the boom, they continue to rise. Um, That's good news if you're a seller, not great news if you're a buyer. But it does indicate for either resilience here and not the scares that people are having in cities like Phoenix and San Francisco where home prices are down so much. But the other thing to keep in mind is that um, while our prices are still growing, the rate of growth is shrinking fast. Each month in the past five, the increase has been at least one percentage point below what it was a month before. So again, for February, the price increase was 3.6%. In January, it was 4.8%. If you go all the way back, it's more than that, more than seven months, because if you go back, the first one I mentioned is uh, July, home prices in the Chicago area were up 12.7%. August 11.3, and then it goes on stair-stepping down till you get to February at 3.6. So there's always the chance that we get into that negative territory that other cities have gotten into, but spring has come. Everybody says that buyers have generally gotten used to what interest rates are doing, uh, these new interest rates. It seems likely that we won't hit zero and we won't hit negative territory, but that doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, right. It remains to be seen. Well, we will talk about that when it comes. We'll see what happens down the road for sure. Before we get into some houses, I want to talk about a story involving tulips. We don't talk about a lot of tulips here on this podcast, but these are really very meaningful and very interesting symbolic tulips. Tell me about this. They are. That's exactly the way to put it. They're meaning, meaningful and symbolic tulips. In the vicinity of 53rd and Prairie, in three of the four corners and another spot at 53rd and Prairie, an artist, Amanda Williams, and volunteers planted 100,000 red tulips last fall. They're in bloom this week. It's, It's a pretty amazing sight. These are lots that have been vacant in many cases for decades. Again, it's three corners of that intersection. There's a building on the fourth corner, but then right next door to it, more vacant lots lots with tulips, red tulips, this beautiful field of red tulips. They mark the site of buildings that uh, were subject to redlining back in the 20th century and uh, redlining led to decay and decay led to demolition. So the idea is that these tulips mark the site of what used to be there and what could still be there. One of the amazing things I think is when you go there, and I think everybody should while tulips are in bloom, go to 53rd and Prairie, you see that um, it's not just fields of tulips. It's fields of tulips planted in the footprints of what would have been those buildings. She, uh, Amanda Williams, the artist, went to the Sanborn maps, found what building was there. So there are some that are the footprint of a house because there were houses on some of those lots. There are some uh, where it's a little more noticeable when you see these. They have the bays that we're used to as window bays in multi-flat buildings in Chicago. So you actually see the footprint of the building. You see the gangways between the buildings are not planted with tulips. So what you're seeing is a burst of red beauty replacing the scar left behind when that building was taken down at some point. The, The buildings weren't all taken down at once, of course. The neighborhoods were left to decline. The buildings were torn down at different times. 
Um, she hasn't yet determined exactly when each of those was taken down, but she said generally being between the 60s and the early 21st century, they were taken down. Um, this is just a really great spot to go and and just sort of, uh, first of all, get a nice burst of joy, as she said. You know, you, you look at it and, and here's this wonderful burst of red in a place where you don't see it, in a place that is, you know, the, the, generally those lots have just been scraped bare. Um, and in spring, because our landscape is bare, it's a pretty barren area. And now it's a blooming with these 100,000 red dots. Um, but it's also a place, I think, where you can, you can really sort of sit and think, uh, yeah, uh, the things that happen on these sites, the reasons these sites are empty, redlining, which for people who aren't aware was a, a federally subsidized process where lenders uh, received maps that had red lines on them that said, don't lend mortgages within these red lines. These places have been deemed um, poor credit risks based on the racial makeup of the area with inside the red lines. That's why it's called redlining. Um, and, and you can sort of think, so if these built, nobody could get loans on these buildings and they then of course didn't have the money to maintain, what is the downhill slope from there to the building being demolished and then the space being left empty for a very long time before somebody comes along and plants tulips? to commemorate what happened there. And it reminds me of the artwork of uh, Tanika Lewis-Johnson, who you've also written about, who's doing a lot of work to make this kind of visual representation of how racism in the housing world has impacted, you know, and, and like the lasting impact of that racism in the housing world. Because it's one thing to kind of know the history and know that it happened, but it's quite another to see a visual reminder, like public art or tulips or something like that, to say this this is something on top of something that happened. And here's a visual way where you can't, you can't not notice it. You can't not notice it. You also can't just drive or walk or ride your bike by and say, wow, these people aren't keeping this neighborhood up. You sort of are reminded, as you say, by Tanika Johnson's signs, um, by Amanda Williams's tulips. You're sort of made to stop and think, oh, uh, something happened to make these places so empty. Something hurtful, something now illegal happened to make these places empty. Yeah, I said in the story, I connected it to uh, both the example you gave and the group we've talked about who are uh, spending time in the basement of the Cook County building, finding racist covenants on all the properties they can in Cook County, which is, and as we talked uh, several weeks ago about, um, they've put up a map. It's not complete yet. They've only done a portion of the county, but uh, that will be something where you can go and say, this place had a racist covenant and I might be able to look from that point to the present, that point in history to the present and figure out why this neighborhood now looks so desolate. Um, yeah, I think all of these are ways for uh, all of us to come to terms with the fact that as several sources have said to me in the course of doing these stories, Chicago really was one of the capitals of racism in real estate. We, Chicago is where the first covenants were written and then essentially exported via real estate groups and attorneys to other cities all over America. And this is something we do need to come to terms with. When you look at those neighborhoods and you think, how could it get this way? Well, it all starts in essentially 100 years ago in the 30s. 
Yeah, yeah, with, with systemic efforts, indeed. Well, let's talk about some houses. Let's start by talking about a doctor that healed what was ailing, a Lincoln Park 2 flat. Dr. Robert Murphy, what an interesting man. Seems like it. This was such a fun interview because he's such an upbeat person. So Robert Murphy um, is an epidemiologist, or sorry, is an infectious disease specialist at Northwestern Hospital, known all over the world. Known in Chicago primarily because, you know, he's a scientific researcher. How do we know? What do we know about him? But during the COVID uh, crisis, he was on the WGN Morning News day after day after day explaining what was going on. So very familiar to Chicagoans. And um, his home is really interesting. He bought this in 2014. It, was a, it wasn't run down, but it was a, a two flat that needed some help. It hadn't really been rehabbed in a long time. It's right on Halstead. It's by a lot of things people would recognize, Steppenwolf Theater, all around in that neighborhood. Um, and what he told me is, at the time, 2014, his daughter and her husband were looking for a place. And he said, oh, you should buy this two flat and fix it up. And they said, yeah, that's too much work for us. And he, so then he said he worked so hard convincing them that he convinced himself. <laughs> right. Bought the place. And it's an interesting place because from the street on Halstead, what you see is a very classic Chicago building, scraped brick, limestone, decorative cornice on the top, dozens, hundreds, thousands of them all over the city, especially in that part of Lincoln Park. But then you go inside and you're in something completely different. He had the entire inside gutted and rebuilt, did an extension off the back. So you see, you see a lot of that scraped brick, a lot of that raw brick that you see on the exterior, but you also see, oh, speaking of the color red, this red steel beam that runs down the middle of the first floor because he removed walls, like a typical two flat in Chicago. It had some of those little bitty bedrooms and things. He took all that out, made, made the first floor one big living space, second, same, third is, is carved up a little bit more. Um, so there's this red steel beam that runs down the middle, this really beautiful metal staircase, really nice in the old spaces. And then as you get to the back of the first floor, um, the building is deeper than it was. He added a kitchen, really nice kitchen. And then above it on two levels are terraces. So if you picture the standard, it, it's three stories high. So really a three flat, you picture a Chicago three flat with those wood balconies and stairs coming down. This is a version of that, but bigger terraces, really beautiful sort of sculptural stairs, really nice, just a beautiful place. He's asking, I should say, just under $2.5 million for it. And um, do you want to ask me about Nana walls or should I just go for it? Yeah, just go for it. <laughs> so one of the things that he and his architect did that I think is really interesting is we're seeing a lot of these nano walls, which are basically foldable glass walls so that you have what looks like, you know, old fashioned um, sliding glass doors almost on a wall. But then when it's open, it folds away so much that you have almost nothing. You have really you're wide open to the outside. So a couple of the levels have that. So for instance, the kitchen opens completely to a terrace via these nano walls, but then there's an, like an extra nano wall on the second floor. So as I said, they opened up the floor, so the took out a lot of the walls, so it's one nice big deep room, but it can be divided. This is, this is probably hard to do on a podcast, but in the story, you can see the photos. Um, there's a bedroom, there, uh, let's go to the back. From the back, you go from a terrace through a nano wall into a bedroom, through a nano wall, into the 
larger space. So what happens is if somebody's using that guest bedroom, they close the nano wall, they have their own bedroom, bath, and terrace. If they're not there, you open it up and you have just one very large room, including a bed uh, that goes out to the terrace. Just really one of the nicest touches I saw in that house. And there are a lot of really cool things in that house. You're exactly right. I think there's so many cool details. The red beam is very cool. Everybody head to chicagobusiness.com and you can see these pictures because they're they're very cool. And I love how they've kind of celebrated that in the decor of the pictures have kind of brought that red through yeah. throughout that to, to point to that. I mean, it's a very clean and modern looking uh, look inside. You know, we, we often see with a rehab of an older building, like it'll kind of stick to the classic lines or it'll go really far another direction. They've kind of somehow managed to do both. It still looks like it's in alignment with that classic old structure, but it looks like very clean and modern lines inside at the same time. Yeah, I totally agree. There are, so there are some bedrooms on the upper floors that look essentially as they did originally. So that helps, but also in those main living rooms, in like that big living area on the first floor, you have the raw brick, you have the um, a whole wall of that. And that really sort of takes you back to the history. But then you've got these new insertions. And so it does, I think it does exactly what you're describing. Feel, feels as if I respected the history and I didn't go so far forward that you just forget it was ever there. Plus we got to say Nana Walls a bunch. Nana Wall, yeah. And I feel like we need to say Nana Wall all the time because it's just fun to say. And neither of us is a Nana yet, so no. it's probably, for now, we'll just talk about the walls. We'll just talk about the walls. One day. There's someone with the last name Walls who's like, oh, wait, I'm Nana Walls. Okay, that's me. Right. Someone's exactly. listening. Exactly. Call about, us. Give right. us a call. The official Nana Wall. All right. Um, so let's talk about a $9 million condo in the Palmolive building that has both front and backyards. Oh, my gosh. This one, when you look at the pictures, uh, like... I think I say this often, it couldn't be more Chicago, but yeah. it really applies here because you're at the Palmolive building, which most people know is a beautiful Art Deco building on Michigan Avenue. Uh, once was Palmolive Soap, later was Playboy, now is Condos. Really a very well-known building. And um, like a lot of Art Deco buildings, like a lot of buildings from its era, it has hips. It steps back, right? It goes up to a certain height and then the building gets narrower. It goes up to a certain height, gets narrower on those hips. On the 22nd floor, this condo has both east-facing and west-facing terraces. They're the whole 22nd floor. You can go out to the east, look at the lake. You can go out to the west, for instance, at sunset, look at the sunset. Um, they have, uh, <laughs> it really does count as front yard and backyard or yards in the sky because I, I looked at uh, the numbers there. They have 2,600 square feet of terrace on those two terraces. 2,600 square feet. If you look at a standard Chicago lot, 25 by 125, that's 3,125 square feet. And up to about 1,000 uh, feet of that typically is covered by building, by garage, by building, by porch, that kind of thing. So we're talking about yard, a yard 22 stories high that's bigger than what a lot of people have at their terrestrial house in Chicago. Um, it's also, I mean, it's a really nice condo, but to be able to have these terraces sitting among uh, high rises, and then they really, they really did it because they have artificial turf on both. So it's as if you've walked out onto the lawn. They have pretty good sized pine trees in boxes all around the edges. So you're on the lawn surrounded by trees as you might be in your backyard on the ground. It's, it's pretty cool. 
That's kind of the best of both worlds right there because then you have some outdoor space that's that feels spacious and nice and private, but also you're right there in the middle of everything. Plus, right now, as spring is starting, I think one of the great advantages is artificial turf, no mowing. That's right. <laughs> you don't have to mow it if it's on the 22nd floor. Not at all. Exactly. Indeed. And again, that's uh, $9 million for that condo. Yeah. And we should probably talk just briefly about the seller. It's $8.95 million. It's being sold by the widow of a pretty prominent car dealer, Mike McGrath, who died in December 2022. Um, McGrath Lexus, people would be aware of McGrath Acura, lifelong car dealer, son of a car dealer in Elgin, I read in his obituary, starts a chain of car dealerships in his early adulthood, sells it, later starts uh, with Lexus dealerships outside Chicago and ends up with this large, with this group of, I think it's six dealerships, Lexus, Honda, Hyundai, Acura, now run by his sons. Okay. Um, let's go to Wicker Park and talk about condos that used to be a very special church. I am so fascinated by this building, which is going to be demolished. Uh, this is on Crystal Street in Wicker Park. Uh, re- the, the parcel just sold for $2.3 million. The parcel includes a church and a surface lot. The church has most recently been the People's Missionary Baptist Church. And a lot of people may have walked by and seen the crucifix. It's sort of a lighted sign that says People's Missionary Baptist. But peel away that letter, look at the stone plaque over the front door, and it actually has a pretty interesting history. It was built in 1904 as the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Our Savior for the Deaf. And so it's built in 1904, and the vacant lot next door was their uh, the minister's residence, built about 20 years later and eventually torn down. Let's talk first about the condos, the developers who bought it, um, tearing the building down. It, uh, it was on a demolition delay, but it had no landmark protection or anything, and was apparently um, pretty dilapidated by the time of the sale. They're putting up uh, uh, 10 condos priced from $600,000 to $1.3 million. Um, and one of the things the developer said to me is right before demolition, they'll bring in, you know, salvage people, fans of old buildings to see what they can salvage from this building. And I hope somebody pulls the stone plaque off the top of the door. I'm not sure if you can. I'm not sure if it's completely integrated into the brick facade, but somebody, I hope, will save the sign that says Evangelical Lutheran Church of Our Savior for the Deaf. And let's talk about that church. This This is one of those where when you start digging in, you think, oh, today I found a new hero. So 1890s, there's a a Lutheran minister in that same neighborhood, Augustus Ranke, um, and somebody comes to him, it's not entirely clear who, and says, could you start preaching to the deaf? And so he goes out and learns sign language, starts preaching to the deaf, and he, he ends up preaching all over the Midwest preaching in sign language to the deaf, and also essentially launching the Lutheran Church in America's mission to preach to the deaf. So it all starts in this neighborhood. Um, And then in 1904, his son, Augustus Reinke, uh, the son of Augustus Reinke, Arthur Reinke, builds the church, which continues the mission of preaching to the deaf. Um, And so there was this nationwide push by the Lutheran Church to preach to the deaf, and it all starts in that neighborhood and eventually is essentially headquartered, or the mother church is right there on Crystal Street, um, which I just think is incredibly fascinating. I mean, one of the reasons there was a need for preaching to the deaf in Chicago, 
I read is that because we had so many industrial, Chicago was known as the place, if you can't get a job in Chicago, you can't get a job anywhere. Um, And there were a lot of jobs that people could use, uh, industrial jobs that you could do, even if you were missing hearing, even if you were hearing impaired, you'd be able to do these jobs. So it became a capital or a place that deaf people migrated to in order to get jobs, just as black people came up from the South in order to get jobs. And so there were a lot of deaf people in Chicago and Augustus Ranke has essentially recruited to preach to them via sign language. It's a shame to see it torn down because it's so it's got a, such an interesting history. Yeah, it you know it, it's in bad shape. I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to blame a developer because we have seen a lot of church conversions into condos, and you know sometimes the rooms are their floor plans are a little janky because you, you just don't really it doesn't lay out like a condo. Um, I can understand taking it down. I think we all should sort of note that it is being taken down, mourn its loss, and move on. All right. Well, let's talk about, we have two more houses to talk about. One is a, a corner lot house for sale in Lincoln Park that is, metal is a big theme there. Yeah. It's so cool. It's clad in metal. This is a really interesting house. Um, so it's right on the corner of uh, Burling and Armitage. It's on a corner lot. Everybody can see. It's a it's a small lot. It's I think it's 80 feet wide and 80 feet deep and 20 wide. It's very, it's small compared to the 25 by 125. Uh, and in uh, 2017, a guy named Gray Novak and his father, John Novak, the head of the very large construction company, tapped the architect Michael Graham to build something there. It's, and now it's on the market, but it's such a great house. It's, so it's clad in corrugated steel, and then it has these giant perforations for windows, much of which is it looks smoked from the outside, but it's, it's reed glass. It's, it blurs your sight. So what they, what that does is you're inside a house on this small lot. It's a relatively narrow house, but you get an enormous amount of light through those reed glass windows, but people can't see in at least during the day at night. Gray Novak told me when the light switches, you've got an artificial light source inside, nothing outside people can see in. So you, you have curtains, but during the day, which is when I was there, it's so cool. It's just, it's so great because you're getting all this light, nobody's seeing you. Um, and it's got these, aside from the metal um, exterior, it's got these great sort of serene contemporary finishes, uh, metal staircase, just beautiful. And so the interesting thing about it is, or that's one interesting thing about it, that it's for sale at 1.75 million and it's beautiful. But the other interesting thing about it is that the architect, Michael Graham, has done a bunch of houses for the Novak family, for John Novak's family. Um, he also built one, designed one for John Novak himself a few blocks away on Burling, which I don't think we had the podcast when it was on the market, but it was on the market several years ago. Didn't sell. It has sort of a walled courtyard that people are probably aware of at Burling and Armitage. And then one we did talk about is um, uh, Gray Novak's sister, John Novak's daughter, Mimi Novak, had a house in Wicker Park that in the back was all glass, but in the front looked was built to look like an old firehouse. Mm, yes. It had this sort of arch door for the garage. Remember that one? Right. Mm-hmm. Totally cool. And that one sold for uh, a little over $2 million last year, $2.05 million. Um, all of these, one other family member's house, a farmhouse rehab in northwestern Illinois, all done for members of the Novak family by 
Michael Graham, an architect at Lederbach and Graham, who does fabulous stuff everywhere. I've been to his house, to houses he designed in Lake Forest, in Lincoln Park, other places. Really wonderful, handsome houses. And then this family just keeps coming back to him. I guess they're satisfied customers. I, yeah, they seem to be. They spoke highly of him. He spoke highly of them for the story that I wrote. And again, you can find pictures of this house at chicagobusiness.com. What I really like about this is here's this very modern structure, but the the exposed wooden beams on of the ceiling really just look very natural and, and kind of gets away from that really industrial look with these natural elements. It's really a beautiful house. It really is. It's warm. That warms up the interior. The wood you're talking about does it as well. It's very well. Well done. All right. One more to talk about, and that is the condo at the top of the Aqua building. Yeah. It remains unsold eight years later. Been for sale since 2015. It's on the 80th and 81st floors, which are the two highest livable floors at Aqua. It's not all of those floors. It's part of 80 and part of 81. Uh, but you are up on the highest point you can get, you can live. Um, and in that beautiful building designed by Jeannie Gang and Studio Gang, for those who don't know for sure, it's the one that looks like it has eroded the sides sort of wave in and out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the really wavy. cool. Not mm-hmm. the blue green one just a few blocks away, also by Studio Gang. This is from an earlier time, uh, the mid 2000s. And, and it's just a fantastic space. One of, I, so I once shot a video up on their uppermost balcony, their 81st floor balcony. And one of the great things is that eroded look, that undulating look of the exterior of Aqua, that is picked up in the balconies. Your balcony is not a rectilinear thing. It has a curving, undulating floor. So you can stand out on this balcony and it feels as if you're on a rock ledge or something because it's not rectilinear, but you're on a rock ledge 81 stories up looking at all the tall buildings all around you. Um, Pretty spectacular. It came on the market in 2015 at $6 million. Uh, it's been on and off the market several times since then, came back on the market recently at uh, just under $4.5 million. Pretty big leap there. Yeah, yeah. So the only comparable property, and it's not fully comparable, is another. So they're on 80 and 81. There's another unit on 80 that sold for $1,138 a square foot. This is several years ago. I wrote about it then. But if you just use that number, this one would sell for a little under $4.1 million. You have to figure in the difference between that year and this, the fact that this is more of a showcase property because it's two stories, et cetera. But they're at 4.6 now. They were at $6 million. We'll see. It's been eight years. At some point, something's got to move. Yeah, that's right. We, we shall see. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, the Jose Cuervo tequila owner is set to buy a Wacker Drive office building for a fraction of its pre-COVID value. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard about here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash subscribe and using code DAILYGIST, all one word, at checkout to redeem this offer. So be sure to visit chicagobusiness.com slash subscribe and enter code DAILYGIST to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
Donald Trump's real estate business has won a key court ruling that could deliver $1 million in property tax refunds to the owners of his hotel in downtown Chicago. Crane's Albie Galoon reported that the Illinois Appellate Court ruled in recent days that Cook County assessment officials overvalued the hotel and commercial space in the Trump International Hotel and Tower in 2011, just a couple of years after it opened. As a result, Trump and other investors in the hotel paid about a million dollars more in property taxes than they should have, money that now will be refunded to them. Galoon noted in reporting that the case has been moving through the appeals process for years, led initially by Alderman Ed Burke of the 14th Ward, who has worked as a property tax attorney outside of city council. The court ruled that the Illinois Property Tax Appeal Board did not err in 2021 when it reduced the 2011 estimated market value of the hotel and retail space to $37 million, down from a value of $62.4 million placed on the property by the Cook County Board of Review. Galoon also noted in reporting that that lower figure and the projected million-dollar refund will stand unless the Board of Review appeals the decision to the Illinois Supreme Court, also noting in reporting that the appeal covers only the 339-room hotel and retail space in the high-rise, not the building's 486 residential condos. Galoon previously reported how in 2008, Trump and the project's lender, Deutsche Bank, battled in court over an overdue construction loan on the building, but eventually reached a truce. Trump developed the hotel as a condo hotel, selling off individual hotel rooms to investors. But as Galoon also noted, condo hotels turned out to be a fad that fizzled, and Trump wound up buying most of the hotel rooms for himself, an investment he still holds today. Sales of the building's residential condos also took a long time amid a weak condo market, and attempts to lease the commercial space on the tower's lower floors have mostly failed, as the 74,000-square-foot space still remains almost completely vacant. And as Galoon further noted, the hotel has performed poorly as well, especially since Donald Trump launched his presidential campaign in 2015. The property's revenue and earnings fell from 2015 through 2019 according to financial documents filed with the Cook County Assessor's Office. Meanwhile, the hotel's value for tax purposes has risen. The Board of Review valued the hotel at $73 million last year, up 26% from its 2021 value of $58.1 million, according to county records. After six and a half years in office, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox is calling it quits. I will not be on next year's ballot by my choice. The official word came Tuesday at a city club luncheon at which Fox announced she will not seek a third term in next year's elections, but will serve out the rest of her current term. That this administration is somehow responsible for a rise in violent crime is disingenuous and best and a lie. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines noted that Fox's departure may set off a scramble to become the new county prosecutor and noted that her two terms have been marked by controversy, from her frequent spats with Mayor Lori Lightfoot to the Jussie Smollett case and a domestic violence incident in which Fox's husband accused her of slapping him. I leave now with my head held high, with my heart full, knowing... that better days are ahead. 
Over the course of her time in office, Fox also found herself at the center of debates over criminal justice reform and spikes in crime in the city, including what critics called lax prosecutions stemming from civil unrest during the summer of 2020 following the death of George Floyd, who was killed by a Minneapolis police officer. Hines noted that at least one prominent Democrat, former county commissioner Richard Boykin, is already pondering a race for the job next year. He lost a primary contest to County Board President Tony Preckwinkle last year, but Hines said that in a phone interview, Boykin said the prosecutor's post is a different job, one in which he said he is interested and said he has ideas to bring to the table. Also pondering a run is former Chicago Inspector General Joe Ferguson, saying in a statement the Fox News, quote, presents an opportunity and saying he will make a decision in the coming weeks. Hines further noted that also worth keeping an eye on is Daniel Kirk, who was first assistant to former state's attorney Anita Alvarez. In tweets, he said he's not made a decision about entering the race, but wrote, quote, But one thing I know for sure is that the next state's attorney must make public safety their number one priority. Find more political reporting and commentary at chicagobusiness.com. Chicago's St. Augustine College will merge with Lewis University, the schools announced this week, with both boards of trustees unanimously approving the decision. Crane's Brandon Dupre, who covered the news, noted that the schools will now submit an application to the Higher Learning Commission to make St. Augustine College an official part of Lewis University in Romeoville. St. Augustine said it expects the two to become a single unified school by spring of 2024. The school said that the merger will allow for more degree programs and expanded bilingual educational opportunities in urban and suburban locations. Situated at 1345 West Argyle in Chicago, St. Augustine College is a largely Hispanic-serving institution founded in 1980. But over the past few years, the school has seen significant declines in enrollment, falling from 966 in the fall of 2019 to just 777 in the fall of 2021, the most recent data the school has available. Lewis University, located 35 miles southwest of Chicago, is a much larger institution by comparison, serving a student population of 6,500, making it the eighth largest not-for-profit private university in Illinois. The Catholic University is also home to a well-known aviation program. Dupre noted in reporting that smaller colleges have increasingly come under financial stress with enrollment in decline, rising inflation, and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic straining budgets, also reporting that since 2016, more than 75 institutions of higher learning across the country have closed or merged, according to the Higher Ed Dive newsletter. Last year, Lincoln College, which is 35 miles north of Springfield, closed after 157 years of operation, and McMurray College in downstate Jacksonville closed in 2020 after years of financial hardship. In a joint press release, St. Augustine and Lewis said the merger is, quote, centered around a shared mission to expand access and opportunity for students who are often, quote, underrepresented and underserved in traditional higher education. Dupre noted that the two schools did not disclose the financial nature of the merger, nor offer further details about the reasons for it, but did note that the merger is subject to the approval of the Higher Learning Commission, the Illinois State Board of Higher Education, and the U.S. Department of Education. Both schools will operate independently until the merger is complete. 
The former Hollywood Casino Amphitheater in South Suburban Tinley Park has been renamed the Credit Union One Amphitheater. Terms were not disclosed, but a spokesperson for Live Nation Entertainment said in an email it's a long-term, multi-year agreement. Live Nation Entertainment owns the outdoor venue, which seats more than 28,000 people, according to a press release announcing the name change. Credit Union One is based in downstate Rantoul and has corporate offices in West Suburban Lombard and Henderson, Nevada. It has branches in Illinois, Indiana, Georgia, as well as Nevada, according to the press release. In 2019, Credit Union One signed a 15-year naming rights deal for the former UIC Pavilion, now named the Credit Union One Arena, and is the official banking partner of Notre Dame Athletics. The Tinley Park venue had been named the Hollywood Casino Amphitheater since 2015. The family that makes Jose Cuervo tequila has reached a deal to buy a Wacker Drive office tower for a fraction of its pre-COVID value. Another data point illustrating the dramatic loss of value for downtown office buildings. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that Miami-based Agave Holdings is finalizing an agreement to acquire the 35-story office tower at 300 South Wacker Drive, according to a source familiar with the deal, which is said to value the property around $96.5 million. That's the value of a mortgage tied to the building held by lender Deutsche Bank, which is said to be providing new financing to Agave as part of the transaction. Ecker noted in reporting that if the sale is completed, it would wipe out all of the equity of the seller, a joint venture of Chicago-based Golub and Boston-based Alcyon Ventures, which paid $155 million in 2017 for the 535,000-square-foot building. Ecker noted in reporting that Golub and Alcyon also spent another $10 million on renovations and upgrades to the tower, according to industry newsletter Real Estate Alert, which first reported the Agave deal. Agave, which is the real estate investment arm of the Beckman family of Mexico that has owned Jose Cuervo for generations, is betting on the future of an office building that is currently 75% leased, according to real estate investment company CoStar Group. Ecker further noted in reporting that the plight of the downtown office market is also nothing new for Agave, which paid just under $83 million last year for the office tower at 225 West Washington. That price was just below the balance of the debt that the previous owner had taken out on the property. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.